Welcome to the Crossroads Church Sermon Podcast. The following message is meant to help intersect your road with God's road. Crossroads Church gathers to discover God, grow in Him, and reach out to others. For more information, visit crossroadsstjames.life. Praise God. Well, we are glad to have you here today. And uh, pray that things continue to go well for you. And as Easter approaches, you got plans and stuff. Hope those will go well. If you don't have plans, well, we got some stuff happening here if you want to help out with that. But um, let's get into our message today. In our In our journey through the Bible, that's Maybe some of you don't know that. That's what we do. We just go through the Bible. We preach on the Bible. And uh, we started this some time ago, 2015. We started back in Genesis. And in 2022, it's seven years, and we're just getting to the end of of Kings here. Um, And so as we're going through this, I stated a couple of weeks ago that we would try to stick as chronologically correct as as we could. Um, and that would mean we're going to have to bounce around the books of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel for a little bit, uh, because the last couple of chapters, last chapter, 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, has very little information. It's just, hey, they screwed up, God punishes them, and then it's over. I mean, 2 Chronicles goes from they were done, and God punished them, put them into exile to and then God brought some of them back, and, and they rebuilt the temple with, with Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, it, it skips. There's a 70-year there's a gap between uh, the verses within, within that last chapter. Um, so I wanted to, us to be able to take a deeper look at what was going on uh, in that time as the, the nation was falling, especially with Judah, and uh, to continue to look at that. So we read last week that Nebuchadnezzar uh, has come to power in Babylon. He's beaten out Nico and Egypt uh, for control over Judah and King Jehoiakim. What we learned through Jeremiah was that this was all at the hand of God. God was the one that said, listen, this is all going to be in Babylon's hands. I'm going to use Babylon uh, kind of to exhort my... my um, well, to be an exactor of punishment upon Judah. Um, so uh, um, as we mentioned last week, as Nebuchadnezzar came to power, he started taking the youngest and the brightest of Judah to serve him in Babylon. One of those guys was, was Daniel. So today we're going to jump over to the book of Daniel and spend a little while there in the first few chapters. We'll spend a few weeks there in those first few chapters. Now next week we got Palm Sunday, so there'll be a special message for that. And then we got Easter after that. So beginning on the 24th, we'll get back to this. But today we're going to start looking at Daniel, and then come back to it towards towards the end of the month. Um, now, if you can recall, you know I, I had shown you when you're bouncing around these three books, you kind of got to understand where you're at so that you don't get confused when you're reading this stuff because it can get kind of goofy because the messages are different. Jeremiah is in Judah. Uh, Daniel is couple, almost a thousand miles away uh, in Babylon. And then Ezekiel is a little bit northeast, uh, north, northwest of, um, 
of Daniel and Babylon. He's in another part of the, the area there. But they're all in different parts of 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 the world at that time and they all have kind of they all have the same message but at the same time it's a different message so if you can recall uh the the calling that we could see with jeremiah was he was a man of god called to stand on and proclaim the truth of god to a people who thought they were following god but they really were not so when we look at jeremiah the emphasis of the messages are on the church its function or maybe even its dysfunction um and how we fit into it, how that can be fixed, how we can work on that. With Daniel, it's like the complete other side of the spectrum. Daniel was a man of God called to stand on and proclaim the truth of God to a people who didn't know God. They didn't know God. They they, they were powerful. They knew, what, you know, they knew what to do when it came to world power. And Nebuchadnezzar was a very powerful human being and uh, you know, really had Babylon rise to great prominence, not just as king, but, but when he was prince. You know, his, his father made him the commander of the armies. And it was Nebuchadnezzar who was leading these armies, taking out the Assyrians, taking out the Egyptians, and, and really establishing um, what would be his, his rule um, through, throughout the land. So, so we see this, uh, a different kind of view of what happens with Daniel. Now, listen, just because the people of Judah were being taken outside of their homeland and away from the temple, it didn't mean that righteous living under the authority and power of God disappeared. It's not like, okay, you're out of Judah, now just live however you want to, do whatever you want. That's not how it was. They still needed to follow God the best that they could, even though they didn't have the temple, even though they didn't have the altars, even though they weren't able to sacrifice and do those things, they still needed to live righteously under the authority and power of God for those that were there. So what Daniel had was a pagan society culture with the help of Satan trying to influence him and pull him out of the grips of God's hands. That's really what's happening. So as he's living in Babylon, he's got this constant pressure from the culture around him to go away from what he knew, to go away from what he loved, to go away from what he understand. That is that is the issue that we see with Daniel. So with all that being said, I, I, I wanted to be, tra- or uh, uh, before I get to that, sorry. So, so Daniel has that. For us, we'll be looking more at godly living outside of these four walls um, to a pagan society and culture with the help of Satan trying to influence us and pull us out of the grips of God's hands. The comfort that you feel within the church, I hope you feel that. I hope you feel a peace. I hope you feel the love of God here. I hope you feel the presence of God here. But now what happens when you get out of the building? Is, is it still there? Do you still feel that power? Do you still feel that peace? And that's kind of what we're looking at here when we look at the book of Daniel. Now, with all of this being said, I wanted to be really trans- transparent with you that a chunk of my messages from the first few chapters of Daniel will borrow from lessons and ideologies from a book called The Daniel Dilemma by a pastor in Alabama named Chris Hodges. Now, for some of you uh, that have been around the church for a little while, about three or four years ago, we went through this book on Wednesday nights, and uh, it's a really good book, has some great messages uh, about culture, about identity, about all those kinds of things, and it really plugs in. He's really able to, to show us how it works today. Um, and since he wrote that three or four years ago, it's still, th- those messages can still ring true. So if you still have that book, um, I, would, I would encourage you to read it again. 
and check it out. I'm like, I'm not going to sit here and read it verbatim to you. I do kind of change up my messages a little bit. I mean, this isn't story hour with Dave and, you know, book, book club with Dave. Let's, let's read this real quick. Um, so, uh, that's, that's where I'm getting a, a chunk of my information from, not all of it, but, but a, a chunk of it. So we're going to be looking at that when it comes to Daniel. So, so let's dive right into here in Daniel chapter one. If you have your Bibles, Daniel chapter one, starting at verse one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So real quick here, let's pause for a moment. Right off the bat, some of you might notice an error in the dating. Maybe if you remember last week's message, chances are probably don't. What is it? We only retain five seconds of what we heard about 30 minutes after the conversation. But anyways, maybe you may have noticed that that there might be an error here in dating. Jeremiah mentioned a couple of times, and 2 Kings tells us that it was in the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign that Nebuchadnezzar became king of Babylon. Well, what gives? Is there an error in the Bible here? Are we all up a creek because the Bible can't seem to get its timing right, its dating right? Uh, Listen, it's simply that Daniel was raised in the Babylonian ways of recording data and used the Babylonian dating methods, which is believed that they may have counted the first year of a reign of a king as a zero year or as an ascension year without putting a number on it. So though it was in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar may have been like, well, I don't count that. I, I count him as only in his third year and, and all these kinds of things. So, so that's why it is. The main point that I want you to see here is that it is a weak argument for trying to find an error in the Bible. That's not really what's going on. Just, just dig a little bit more, and you can see that that's actually how that lines up. So we see then after this dating thing, uh, the common practice of superiority of taking vessels or relics from the temple of a nation's God and placing them in the temple of the superior God, of the superior nation, of the more powerful nation, showing that the God of the inferior nation is subservient to the God of the superior nation. This happened before with the Israelites. If you guys can recall, back in 1 Samuel chapter 5, but instead of of just relics from the tabernacle at the time because they didn't have the temple built. This was uh, long before David. Uh, but the Philistines took not, not you know, like the lampstand or the table of showbread. They straight up took the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God. And if you guys remember that story, it was kind of a funny story. The Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant and they put it like they've been doing for centuries. They put it in the, the, the temple, the tent, the te- building, whatever, of their god, Dagon. And so he brings it in, he puts it in that temple, and what does God do? That night, God literally takes Dagon, the little statue that they have, and knocks him on the ground. And so the Philistines wake up the next day, they go into their temple, and there's Dagon sitting on the ground. They're like, what in the world? And so they pick up Dagon, and they put him back on his little pedestal, and they dust him off, and oh my goodness, I can't believe this happened. All right, everybody back out of the room, and let's let this be, let's let's let Dagon whoop up on the God of the Israelites, and they leave. The next morning, what happens? Well, that night, God knocks him down, but this time, what does he do? At the threshold of the tent, he breaks off the head, the hands, and the feet. So the Philistines come in, and they see the statue and they're like, that's it. We want this thing out of here. And 
By the way, there's a bunch of sores all over everybody. Everybody's got boils and stuff. We're all sick. Get this thing out of here. We don't want the Ark of the Covenant. Send it back. And so they just put it on a cart, and uh, they put some oxen on the front, and they kind of you know, smack the, the oxen in the rear end and say, giddy up, <laughs> get out of here, because we want nothing to do with this thing anymore. So it was, it was a much different feel when, when, uh, when the Philistines had taken the Ark of the Covenant. This is, this is a little bit different. This, is, this isn't that big. In this case, it's minor vessels, and Nebuchadnezzar is probably thinking along the lines of, my God is more powerful than the God of Judah. So I'm going to take these little relics, these vessels, these whatever, they are, and, and bring them over to the, to the temple of my God in Shinar, as it said. This, of course, is wrong. And Daniel made sure to say at the beginning of verse 2 that it was the Lord who gave Jehoiakim and the temple vessels into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. God did not do this, showing himself as subservient to the false. And by the way, Daniel leaves it nameless, this false, nameless God. It's, it's not that he's saying, yeah, you're right, I'm subservient. I can't overcome, man. This is horrible. Oh, well, go ahead, take the stuff from the temple of this God. That's not what God is doing. It's more along the lines of acquiescing to the limited knowledge of human beings and understanding who's in charge of who. So for the human beings, he pretty much says, okay, you guys need to understand that I have made Babylon in charge. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, and I have given him the authority. In order for you all to understand this, because remember we read in Jeremiah 25, all the way from Egypt to Euphrates, they're all drinking this cup of wrath. Listen, you all are under control of Nebuchadnezzar. The really only the way, the only real way that we can show this to you is by showing that he's taking vessels from this temple and putting them over into the, to the, the temple of his God so that you can think, sure, that God is subservient. But really what it is is you as a nation are subservient to this nation and God has installed it. So really what it is is God is like, go ahead, little Nebby. You go ahead on over there and put those in there and, and put, you, you good? Okay, good. Now you can think that you're all powerful and all awesome, but I'm the one in charge. This is how this is working. So I even wonder what he actually took from the temple if it was just some goofy stuff that maybe Jehoiakim or other people put in the temple and they thought was great. And they didn't actually take the table of showbread, the, the altar of incense, the, the uh, candelabra that's in there. I, I just wonder if it's just goofy stuff. And they're like, ah, well, we know the Israelites do that stuff with their God, so maybe we took that. But anyways, that's mainly what's happening. This is not to show that God all of a sudden got weak and was like, oh my goodness, I, I can't overcome Nebuchadnezzar. No. This was showing, listen, I'm willing to reach out to you guys and get you all to understand that, yes, Nebuchadnezzar is in charge, and you're going to need to follow him, because I am the one that placed him in charge. I'm the one that gave him that authority. Then Nebuchadnezzar does what typical rulers of nations do when they overtake other nations, and they try to get everybody on the same page. Y'all need to understand what's going on with Babylon, and you're all going to have to follow our ways. You're going to have to do what we do. You're going to have to talk like we do, talk, all this stuff. If it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. If it flies like a duck, it's a duck. If it swims like a duck, it's a duck. If, if you talk like a Babylonian, you're a Babylonian. This is mainly what he wants to do. I want everybody to understand how the Babylonians work, and this is what you're going to do. So look at verse 3 with me. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, 
his chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, um, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So he uses young, smart, good-looking people. Brings him in, says, this is how it's going to work. Why does he do this? Because people tend to follow young, smart, good-looking people. It's been this way since the dawn of time. No way, Pastor Dave. We haven't been that shallow all this time. Yes, we have. Why do you think we're not a mega church? I'm of average intelligence, and I like chocolate. Now, this is not a diss towards Stevie. I did not look like this 22 years ago. She's just such a good cook. This is what happens. Just kidding. But it really is true. Young. Everybody stop talking. All right. Especially you, Ray. No, but it, it, it's, that's the way it's always been. You look at it, young, attractive people that at least, now, these guys were smart. Daniel, Azariah, Mishael, um, Hananiah, these guys were smart. They, they really were intelligent. But, but let's be honest with ourselves, a majority of the time, if you're young, good-looking, and at least have the appearance of being smart, <laughs> you're probably good to go. You probably got a lot of good things going for you. And so that's what happens. Now, if you don't think this is true, let me, let me give you a quick quote from a world leader here, and you try to guess who this world leader is. Here's the quote. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. Who do you think that was about? Exactly. Isaiah's prophesying about Jesus. He wasn't a good-looking dude. <laughs> so Jesus had it even doubly hard. He's like, dude, I'm ugly, and I got to get people into the kingdom of God. <laughs> I mean, don't strike me. I mean, he, he wrote it. God wrote it. So that's, that's what it is. But, but that's, that's, all, that's how we've always been. Young, kind of knows what they're doing. Good-looking folks. They're of nobility. They're of royal birth, these kinds of things. You know, all these guys are from the tribe of Judah, which was the kingly tribe. So, so all of this was there. So he brings them in to educate them because he knows once we get you educated and you understand the ways of the Babylonians, well, you're going to take all these people that we're taking in and you're going to educate them. And then everybody's going to get on the same page and we are going to be the dominant world power and this is how it's going to work. And so he does all of that. But in order to do that, he has to do one other thing. He has to not only just give them the education of the Babylonians, he has to change their identity. I have to take your identity from what you think you are. 
You have to understand that you are a servant of me. You are a slave to me. You need to change your identity. I can't have you thinking that you're powerful, that you are smart, that you are young, that you are good-looking and intelligent. I can't have you be thinking that. I've got I've to get you thinking a little bit different, so let's change your identity. And he does this by changing their names. This was a very common practice. I told you guys to, to remember this back when Nico changed, Eli, changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. Th- this was a common practice, and what it was meant to do was to degrade and to bully the nation that had become subservient. It was a sign that Nebuchadnezzar owned these people. I own you. I'm going to change your name. It's it's like, you know, it's like a parent with a kid. I'm going to name my kid because this is my kid. Nebuchadnezzar's like, listen, I don't care what your name was. I'm going to name you this because I own you. I am in charge of you. This is how it works. So let's look at these really quick because I want you to really understand. I mean, you want to talk about what's in a name. This is huge. So first of all, let's start off with the big one, which is, which is a huge change. You've got Daniel. What does Daniel mean? Daniel, God is my judge. Powerful name. Great name. Some of you probably are like, maybe I should call myself Daniel because how often do we say that? You don't judge me. God judges me, so I don't care. Very powerful name. Check out his name and what it means. Belteshazzar, Lady Protect the King. He went from a male name to a female name. Now, for some of you, if you're stuck in the world and you're kind of concerned about this gender fluidity garbage and all this stuff, that, that is not the case back then. They didn't have that. They weren't like, if you think you're a girl, if you feel like a girl, you be a girl. That's not how that worked. This, is, this, is how, this, is, this was devastating. He went from a male, powerful God is my judge to a female name subservient to mankind. You're, you're going to notice this throughout these names. All of these names turn the focus from God to a focus on man and to self. So first you got God is my judge, and then you got lady protect the king. It goes from an all-powerful God to a king that needs protecting. I am, I am with God. God is in charge. He knows what he's doing. To all of a sudden, I now have to protect some human king. And not only that... But he made it. He made it feminine. He ma- he made it female. And uh, nothing against females. Okay, understand that's not what I'm trying to say here. What we're tra- what we need to see here is how he was trying to degrade them. You think you're a male. You think you're powerful. Listen, you are going to be in in this sense feminine in this way, and you will be subservient to me. Let's go on to the next one. Hananiah. Hananiah, Yahweh has been gracious. That's a good name, isn't it? That seems pretty good. Maybe some of you are about to change some of your children's names by the time we're done with this today. But anyways, Yahweh has been gracious. Let's change it to Shadrach, which means I am fearful of God. I am fearful of God. You look at gracious, loving God turns to a tyrannical God with a small g that needed to be feared. The, 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 the Hananiah is Yahweh, the actual name of God. Shadrach, that G, notice it's a, it's a lowercase G. It's the God of, um, of whoever the Babylonians were. So you go from, man, Yahweh is so great. He is so wonderful to me. He's awesome to me, to this God I have to be fearful of and, and all those kinds of things. Next, we've got Mishael. Mishael, who can compare to my God? And, of course, the rhetorical answer to that is no one. So you've got this, again, this powerful image of God. Who can compare to God? And then we switch it over to Meshach, which means I am despised, I am contemptible, I am humiliated. You go from confidence in God to cowardice. 
You have, you have great confidence in God. Who can compare to you? God, no one can compare to your God. No one can compare to how great and how powerful he is to, you know what? You're nobody. You're nothing. In fact, your God probably has forgotten you, so you're despised, you're contemptible, you're humiliated. And then finally, Azariah, Yahweh has helped. Yahweh has helped is the meaning for Azariah. His turn is, uh, his name changes to Abednego, which simply means the servant of Nebo. That's all that means. He goes from a son of God who has been helped by God to a slave of a man. Again, all of these names going from godly, powerful names to manly, selfish, uh, kind of worthless names. And it all changes. It all changes their identity. And this is what he's trying to do. He tries to devastate him. This is this is really devastating. But what's amazing is these men do not falter. Some of you are familiar with their stories. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and the fiery furnace. Got Daniel and the lions. Then there's other aspects that we're going to look at. I mean, these were powerful men. Just because Nebuchadnezzar came against them, they didn't forget who they truly were in God. They pretty much said, you can change my name all you want to, and you can call me whatever you want to. It's, I mean, they really did kind of give them the sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And we know that, that that's not necessarily true. But for, for these four guys, that was the case. They were like, your words can't do anything to me because my God is still all-powerful. My God is still my judge. My God is still my, high, is still my help. My God is still my comforter. My God is still my, my encourager. I don't have to worry about what you say to me. I could care less. And so these men stood strong. They were created in the image of God, so they knew their identity was in God. Listen, friends. If you are a follower of Christ, you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, do not allow the world to destroy your identity. And what is that identity? Specifically, Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 17, it's right up there. The Spirit himself, capital S on the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Friends, our identity is we are children of God, heirs to the kingdom of heaven, being prepared for glory. All the suffering, all the difficulties that you are going through is preparing you for future glory. All the difficulties that are to be had, everything that the world is throwing at you, all of these hard things that are coming at you, just like with Daniel, just like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Sorry, I can't remember their names off my, my, the top of my head, their actual names. But anyways, all, all those kinds of things, all the things that they came after them with, Guess what? They're going to be powerful. They were, they were coming into glory. The Lord was preparing them for, for future glory. Now listen, friends, your identity is not as a parent. Your identity is not as a sibling. Your identity is not as employee, as employer. Your identity is not a student. Your identity is not an athlete. Your identity is none of those things. The world may identify you based on those things. They may look at you and say, well, you're a mom. You're a dad. You're a husband. You're a wife. That's your identity. That's not your identity. Your identity is as a child of God. These other things, these things are your literal God-given purposes, your calling in your life. As Chris Hodges says in the book that we're getting some of this information from, purpose is your identity in action. 
So I'm identity as a child of God, the purpose that I have as a parent, as a, as, as a, as a child, as a sibling, as an employee, as a student, as a teacher, as an employer, all of these different things that I do, all these purposes that God has called me to, these, these different hats that I wear, God, I'm, I'm, I'm working as a child of God in those things. With your identity as a child of God, you act in those purposes, pointing others to God. As a mom, as a dad, as a husband, as a wife, as an employer, as an employee, whatever it is, all those different things that you're doing, you are acting as the child of God that you are, showing others who God is. However, we have an enemy, though, that wants to destroy us, right? Comes to seek, kill, and destroy. Wants to destroy us. And he's pretty cunning. And he'll whisper two twisted truths in our ears. And listen, friends. We all have to come to grips with this. All of us in this room, at one point or another, and maybe even currently, have fallen for these twisted truths. We've fallen for them. We all have. I have. You have. All of us have. As awesome, great, and and near perfect as my wife Stevie is, she's fallen for them too. All of us have. I, I don't have to say it about me. You all know that sometimes I'm a dope. That's what happens, though. We've all fallen for these twisted truths. Now, I say twisted truths because Satan doesn't have to necessarily lie to deceive you. He doesn't have to lie. That's crazy, isn't it? There doesn't have to be a blatant lie. It's just a truth that's twisted because that's what he does, right? He'll take the scripture and he'll twist it. He'll just take it and say, okay, this is what this is, but that's not what it is. We're about to see how this works. One of the twisted truths, the first one I want to talk to you about today is that the world doesn't care that you're a child of God. And it's true. The world could care less that you're a child of God. Let's, let's, let's all get involved here. If, if you have a wallet or, or a purse or something, take out your, your ID, your license. You don't have to take it out and show everybody. But uh, come on. You guys aren't doing this. It's interactive hour. Take out your wallet. Come on. Pull out your ID. Now, I won't make you pull out any money. He's like, you already did, Pastor Dave. It's all gone. It's all in the offering bucket. I didn't make you do that, okay? Now, on this dollar bill, as it is with all dollar bills, what does it say? Right on the back here. Oh, man. It's only a single. Don't everybody run and jump for it. It's a single. What's on the back of those bills or maybe on the front of the bill? I don't know how all of them will look. In God we trust. Now, look at your ID there. Driver's license, Minnesota, or whatever state you might be in. Hopefully you're not living a lie. Siski, David, Paul, 617 Armstrong Boulevard, North St. James, Minnesota. Driver's license number issued on that date, expires on that date. Date of birth, class D, doesn't end. My gender, which is weird. Um, Height, weight, we will keep that secret. Eyes. Picture of me. I don't see anything. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe you guys have something. Is there anything in God I trust? Anything on there? Nothing on there, right? By golly, we, we put the word God on our dollar bill, but for you, the actual human being, there's nothing about you on there. You're just a number. The world doesn't care that you are a child of God. And it shows it just within that identification right there. It doesn't care. What does the world care about? The world cares about your position. 
The world cares about your money. The world cares about how good you are at whatever it is you do. The world cares about what you look like. The world cares about make sure you live your truth. Don't push it on us, but you make sure you live your truth. That's what the world cares about. These are the standards of the world. We hear the twisted truth from Satan, and what do we do? We start to care more about that. Why? Because God is often quiet. He's often kind of sitting there, allowing you to choose. Do you want to follow me? Do you want to follow the world? And the world can get so loud, and the world can become so convincing, and we start following after what the world starts thinking about us. We start to care about what the world thinks about us and start acting in ways for the world to accept us. The world, I, want, I want to be accepted by my fellow man. I want other people to look at me and say, there's a cool guy, there's a nice guy, there, or, or girl, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, there's, there's a nice person, a human being. <laughs> They're nice. They seem to make a lot of money. They seem really smart. They seem to have a lot of stuff. Let's, let's include them. And the next thing you notice, we're on the dangerous ground of James 4.4, which says what? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Friendship with the world, bonding together, being yoked with the world, is becoming an enemy to God. Because we start caring too much about the world. Friends, we have to stop caring about what the world thinks about us and start clinging to what God knows about us. I, uh, that's what I expected. <laughs> that wasn't a really loud amen. That's right. I heard one. My wife. I'll give her the dollar. Here you go, babe. <laughs> Just kidding. That, that's a scary phrase. I'm good with what the world thinks about me. Not too great with what God knows about me because God is what God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. God is omnipotent, all-powerful, and God is omniscient, all-knowing. He knows a lot about me. And that might freak you out. And why is that? Because we're probably falling for the other twisted truth. The other twisted truth is your past. Satan wants to remind you of all your past sins and use that as your identity. Dude, you are a liar. You are a gossip. You are a cheat. You are a thief. You are an adulterer. You are an alcoholic. You are a drug addict. You are a sex addict. You are all of these different things. Look how terrible you are. I mean, how does the old line go? Once a cheater, always a cheater, right? All the moms from the South. Don't go back to him. Once he cheated on you, he's going to cheat on you again. And that's what Satan wants you to do. Once a fill-in-the-blank with whatever it is, always a fill-in-the-blank of whatever it is. But what's happening over on the other side of this valley from the mountaintop, what is God doing? No. That's not it. You've come to me, and I've taken your sins. I've cast them as far as the east is from the west. I've thrown them into the sea. You are a new creation. You are a new person. This isn't the way it is anymore. You're no longer an adulterer. You're no longer a murderer. You're no longer an alcoholic. You're no longer a drug addict. You're none of these things. You're no longer a liar. You're none of those things. You are, you are my creation. You are my child. It's all new. I'm done with that stuff. 
You're brand new. This is how it works. Now you walk in life with me and let go of what Satan wants to change your identity to. Your new identity is child of God, heir to the kingdom of God, being prepared for future glory. Satan just wants to kill you. And so often we fall for both of these truths. We either want to grip onto the world and say, you know what, I really want the world to appreciate me. Or, oh my goodness, I can't believe I've been stuck in this sin and, and this is all I ever do. I'm constantly doing this. This is horrible. I'm terrible. I'm a, I'm a bad person. I, I can never be saved. I can never find life. All of those things are false, friends. That is not how it works. Now listen, there is a reason. There is a reason why we don't have the luxury of forgetting our sins. There is a purpose there. And that purpose is so that you remember, you know what? I didn't like how I felt back then. I didn't like the depression. I didn't like the anger. I didn't like the hatred inside of myself. I didn't like the pain. I didn't like being separated from God. So I don't want to do that anymore. And it's a lesson that we all... It takes a lifetime to figure out. I mean, you got your own kids, a lot of you, right? I, I spanked you for doing that. Why did you do it again? Because I really liked it. <laughs> and the spanking, I mean, it hurt for a little bit, but it wasn't too bad after a while. And I just want to do that again. We, we do mess that up. But the main reason why we don't get to forget our sins, like God is so able to do, is to remember, I don't want to be separated again. I don't want that pain again. So let's, let's, let me avoid that. There's, there's also an act of protection there. Listen, friends, we've done things in our past. And, and you know, if you're a good person in, in the way of being found righteous with God, being cleansed of your sins in that way, I'm not just talking about you think you're a good person. You literally become a good person by God cleansing you. There's an aspect to where you know man, that's, that's a temptation for me. And I've got to stay away from that. So in order to protect other people from, from me bringing them down with whatever I do, I'm going to make sure that I don't, I don't do that again. And for some of us, it, it may be, listen, I'm really glad you're saved. And God has forgiven you and cleansed your past. But I'm not God. <laughs> and I've got my own kids to protect. I've got my own spouse to protect, my own wife. I'm sorry, man. I, I, I've got I've to cling to, to that aspect of, of who I am. And, and sometimes you're not able to have your kids hang out with certain people or, or to be able to, to, to do certain things uh, because you know, you know that I, I, need to, I need to protect that aspect. I need to protect that situation. So understand, you know, when we get into discussions, you know, we, we've got a kids ministry and we do background checks and stuff. It's, it's not that we're holding stuff over people's heads. It's that, listen, we, we've got a call to protect other people, and we have to understand that, yes, that person may be free from their sin, and the Lord has forgiven them and has brought them to a healthy uh, situation, but that, that doesn't mean that they're not going to possibly stumble again. And we don't want to throw a temptation at people and just think, well, I can do whatever I want. That's not why God saves you. God doesn't save you so that you can just do whatever you want. God saves you so that you would live that new life and that you would be brought into glory. Uh, just as a little side note. Anyways, so listen, friends, we need to push away these twisted truths and grab onto the identity God gave you as children and heirs to his kingdom. 
We need to act on the purposes that come from your identity. Act as that child of God as you live out being a parent, as you live out being a spouse, as you live out being a child, as you live out being an employee, as you live out being an employer, as you live out being a student, as you live out being a teacher, as you live out being a friend. As you live these things, as these purposes happen in your life, know that your identity is a child of God. And in him there is freedom, there is no record of wrong. There is no keeping tallies of how bad you are. There is only, listen, you're going to go through these various situations. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. But when it's all said and done, you'll be in absolute glory in the kingdom of God. You know, I mean, think about it. Your, your own name. You know, we talked about the names. You know, Daniel, Azariah, Hananiah, Michelle, and then their names being switched. That's one of the promises in the book of Revelation, when he talks to the seven churches, you get a new name. So don't get too attached to your name. Some of you are like, praise God, I hate my name. (laughs) It's a stupid name. I don't know what my parents were thinking. I had a friend in college. You know, we were all going around, well, what is your name? How were you named? I, I was. I was one of those lucky few. My mom was barely a creaster going to Christmas, going to church on Christmas and Easter. She named me after two favorite people in the Bible. She says it's her two favorite people. I think it's the only two people she knew from the Bible. But anyways, she's saved now. It's all good. But um, David and Paul. So, I'm, oh, yeah, my name's David and Paul. And one person in the group. Yeah, my name is Gina Marie. How many of you know who she was probably named after? Anybody want to take a guess? Yeah, a character on the movie Grease. <laughs> so, yeah, it's not that cool. Don't get too attached to your name. Because the Lord is going to change that because your identity is a child of God. You don't have to live out what your name is or what your name means. You can live out what God has called you to. If you don't like your name, give it some time. Like I said, he'll change it later. (laughs) But right at the moment, follow as the, the child of God, as the heir to his kingdom. And as you go out into this world, though they may want to call you something else, though they may want you to think that you're something else, maybe even if you're struggling in your, in your own mind. Because listen, I mean, you get into a church with everybody thinking kind of the same way, this gender fluidity stuff is stupid and all these things. One of you might be sitting here thinking, you know, this is actually a struggle for me. I get it. Well, I, I can't say I get it. But I'm doing my best to understand that you need to work through that and you need to find your identity in Christ and God as an heir, as a child. That's the main problem that we're seeing in all these. You know, it's mostly in athletics. You know, the idea of men trying to compete and win things as women. Their biggest problem, everybody's biggest problem is not knowing God. And that's what we got to get out there. But we need to be confident in who we are in God. Why don't you stand with me today? Let's pray. Let's go after the Lord today. God has redeemed your past. He's taken your sins, and he has cast them. Now, maybe you've done something stupid again. That's great. Guess what? You can immediately go to him and say, God... I messed up. And he'll say, yep, you did. But that's why I sent my son. Here's the blood of the lamb to cover it. Now, we don't do this on purpose. We read Hebrews last week 
if we continue to sin on purpose, friends, there, there is a fearful expectation of judgment. So I'm mainly talking about, man, I slept. I messed up. For some reason, I, I, fall, I fell for that twisted truth, whatever it may have been. I, I, I remembered my past, and I wanted to do that, or I wanted to be loved by the world. Pick it back up. Say, God, help me. Let's keep going. Let's keep moving in the identity that you've given me. Let's go after the Lord. Father, I pray right now for each person that's here today, Lord God. Father, we are in a do whatever you want. Just don't make us change world. Father, I pray first of all for each person that is here, Lord God. I pray for a confidence that if they've accepted your son as their savior, that they know that their identity is as a child of God, an heir to your kingdom. And the stuff that they're going through here on earth is preparing them for that future glory that you have for them, Lord God. Friends, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, Today is the day of salvation, as the Bible says. You don't need me to look at you. You don't need to come forward. You don't need to do any of that stuff. What you need to do is say, God, I need you. Less like we sang earlier today. Lord, I need you. And if you've never done that before, do it today. Jesus, I need you. I know I've done dumb things. I've done things that you would not be pleased with, Father. And you know what they are, Lord. Forgive me. Forgive me. And then tell Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to make you the leader of my life, not myself anymore. I'm not going to sit here and listen to Satan. I'm not going to sit here and listen to lies and those things. I'm going to follow the truth. I'm going to make you the leader of my life. Forgive me. Help me to follow you. Once you've done that, friends, you're a child of God. Now you keep moving with him. Like I said, we're all going to fall. Now is the time to say, Lord, I've fallen. I need you to help me. Receive that forgiveness today, friends. Receive that freedom today. And then move forward as we'll see with Daniel, Mishael, Hananiah, Azariah. These men of God, they continue to move in power, though the world came against them. God, I pray for confidence. Not not so much a self-confidence, Lord, but that God confidence. Your Holy Spirit in their lives to give them boldness. Father, it's not that they have to stand up and shout things, Lord, but that they have that calmness in the middle of a storm, that they have a peace in the middle of difficulty, and people will see that and wonder what is different about them, Lord God, and they'll understand their identity is in the God they follow. And then may it turn the hearts and the minds of those that are around them, Lord God. 
Father, may we act on the purposes that you've given us with the identity that we have, Lord God. May we act as children of God, being prepared for glory as we go to work, as we go home today, as we discipline our kids, as we receive discipline from our parents, Father, as we go to school, as we go to work, as we do what the boss tells us to do, as we lovingly encourage our employees to do the things that they need to do, Lord God, as we teach others, Lord God, may your love, may your power exude from us, God, because that's who we are. You're your children, Lord God. Move in boldness in every individual here today, Lord God. Speak to their hearts, Lord God. Do great things through them, Father, as they cling to their identity, which is found only in you, God. Father, we're going to take this moment now, Lord, to pray for those outside of these walls, for those that are struggling through their own identity crises, as they try to follow the world and try to follow what they think the world wants them to do and and be accepted by the world. God, I pray right now, Father, that you come against the lies of the enemy to this world. Use us, God, as bearers of your truth to go out to people and to speak your truth, Lord God, to speak the truth, Lord God, to let people know there is hope, there is life, there is forgiveness, there is peace through you, Lord God. We don't have to struggle for this, Lord God. We don't have to struggle through this alone, Lord God. We can find our identity in you, God, and continue to live in power. No matter what we may face, Lord God, may we be the bearers of that truth, Lord God, and get that message out to people, Father. And Lord, even if they were to reject us, Lord, even if they were to push away push away our message, Lord God, I pray right now, God, that you would not keep us from being bold. Keep that strength there, Lord God. As hard as it may be, Father, may we do what you said in your word. Sometimes we just got to tap the dust off of our sandals, Lord God, and we have to move on. But Father, may we not do it too quick. May we make sure we get that message out there. May we make sure that we get that truth out there, Lord God. Use us, Lord God, in a powerful way, Lord. May we see people in our jobs, in our schools, in our homes. May we see them come to know your Son as their Savior. We praise you, God. We praise you, Lord. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Praise you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for letting us be your children. Thank you for bringing us into the family, Lord. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for making us free, God. Help us to live in it.